Acts chapter 16. We'll be looking today at verses 1 through 10. Acts 16, 1 through 10. If you would, stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. Acts chapter 16, verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered, them for, they, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that, that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in number daily. And they went through the region of, Fer, of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the, by the Holy Spirit to peak, speak the words in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we have, this privilege that we have to come now to your word. Lord, we don't worship gods like many who worship idols and set up statues who are, uh, who are mute and do not speak. But we worship who God who does speak and who has spoken to us. And you have given us your word here in front of us that we might hold it, that we might have it, that we might read it. Lord, I pray that we would take your word, that we would hide it in our heart, that we would learn from it, that we, could, we would commit ourselves to it. Lord, even today as we come now to this chapter in Acts chapter 16, we know that we come as, as finite, um, as fallible human beings. And so we come and we ask for your help today as we study it, that you would guide us, that you would empower us by the Holy Spirit to see and understand clearly the words here in Acts. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. There's been a lot of talk recently around our house and around some friend groups of ours. Uh, even yesterday, there was an extensive amount of discussion uh, among myself and some of the uh, the other elders here at church uh, about the new Bluey episodes. I don't know if you know, but there are new Bluey episodes out, and they're awesome, okay? I, I, I would dare say that the show Bluey might be, it's at least in contention, for the greatest children's show of all time. Uh, it's that good, and if you ask my kids, they will agree that it is that good. The reason I bring Bluey up is not just because it's such a great show, though it is, but because one of the things about Bluey that I, I love, and not only do I love, but I think is a part of sort of the mastery of the show. The show is not a Christian show by any means, um, but one thing that the show does do, and it does really well, is that the show can take 
everyday, ordinary moments, ordinary things in life, and can teach not just lessons, but valuable, important lessons through these everyday events. Whether it be going to the dump, whether it be going to a a, a baby class, whether it be playing cricket, whether it be playing in a creek, whatever the case might be, all throughout the show, you see these various moments, these various times, these various episodes where, where while the episode is filled with a lot of fun, a lot of humor, a lot of silly things, in the midst of these sort of everyday, ordinary moments of life, the show creators, the crafters, the writers are able to to teach valuable lessons through these moments, through these instances that otherwise would have just been normal everyday moments in life. I think as we approach the scriptures, one of the things that, that we can tend to do is we can come to the moments in scripture that seem ordinary, that seem everyday, that seem just like uh, gap fillers that get us from one story to the next, but don't really have that much significant for us. Uh, and, and I think the passage that we have before us today um, could fall into that category in some people's minds, where we, we largely have the beginnings of, of the second missionary journey uh, that Paul embarks on, and we have them kind of setting out, we have the stage being set, we have uh, the, the roster being assembled, if you will, uh, and, and the ultimate uh, Macedonian call being uh, submitted here in Acts chapter 16. But by and large, we could read these passages and think that they are somewhat tedious, that they're sort of detail-oriented and, and sort of miss the important lessons that are being taught in this passage. Because even in this passage alone, there are, are multiple lessons, multiple important things that we can see and that we can learn even from this passage Uh, If we give it our attention, if we give it our effort, uh, and certainly if we trust the Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us into the truth being revealed. Because as we know, all scripture is breathed out by God, and it is important for us. It is is necessary. It is there for a reason. None of it is an accident. None of it can be done away with, and, and, and that be okay. But every single word of scripture matters. And so my hope today is that we can see, even in this, this passage of scripture, these 10 verses that that kind of, uh, of benchmark or, or bookmark in between these two uh, missionary journeys, these two sort of big events in the life of the early church, that even in this, there's something important for us to see, something important for us to learn. And my hope is that we will learn it today as we, as we look at some of the lessons uh, from the start of missionary journey number two. And we're gonna see just a few different things, and then hopefully at the end we will see uh, how they all tie together under the sovereignty of God. The first thing I want us to see, and this comes from verses one and two, is point number one, is we actually have in this passage an encouragement or an exhortation to Christian parents. We see in verses one and two, this one named Timothy is introduced, that as Paul comes to Derby to Lystra, there was a disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. We're introduced to this guy named Timothy in this passage. One who who is about to become sort of a a feature alongside Paul. Uh, This young man named Timothy who we're introduced to here. uh, We're going to see not only 
uh, him throughout a little bit more of the book of Acts, but even Paul interacting with him and writing letters to him later on in the scriptures. And what do we learn about Timothy in our passage here? On the surface, it seems like, and maybe not a bunch, we learn a little bit about his immediate lineage, that he comes from a woman who was a believer. She was a Jewish convert to Christianity. Uh, and we learn that his father was Greek. Those are important things that we're going to dive into a little bit more. We also learn that he was spoken of well by his Christian brothers and sisters. That he was a Christian, he was a disciple of Christ who was spoken well of by the brothers and sisters there. Meaning that in this church, he was under, be, understood to be a faithful man. He was understood to be a man of good reputation. If you recall, these are some of the very same qualities that as Paul writes to Timothy, he's going to lay out for him to say, this is necessary for anyone who would seek to be a pastor, an overseer. One of the qualifications is, as Timothy has acknowledged here, they must be thought of well. But the question that we, we kind of need to ask and, and get to the bottom of a little bit is, how did we get here? How did Timothy get to this point where he has well thought of by the brothers and sisters, where he is well thought of by the Christians that are around him, where he is looked up to, where he is understood to be a solid, God-fearing, Christ-loving believer. And the answer comes, not necessarily in Acts, but the answer actually comes in Paul's second letter to Timothy. And we see it here in 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 15. We see sort of the answer to how Timothy got here. Paul says to Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. You remember we mentioned earlier, and we read about Timothy, about his mother. We read about his mother that she was not only Jewish, but that she was a believer. And we begin to put the pieces together when we read that, along with what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, where he says that you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. What we begin to see, the picture we begin to, to have of Timothy and his relationship to his mother here and the reason she's mentioned in the book of Acts and then later on in the book of 2 Timothy is because of what she did and the role that she played in Timothy's life. We learn that she, and we learn this from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5, along with uh, Lois, her mother. So you have Lois, that is Timothy's grandmother, and Eunice, his mother, spoken of in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, where Paul says, But I, rem I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. What have we learned about Timothy and about his upbringing and about how he got to where he is now? We learned that Timothy got here, certainly by the providence of God, but as God worked through his grandmother and through his mother to teach him the scriptures, to encourage him in the faith, to tell him of the good news of Jesus Christ. Christ. We see a sort of family lineage of believers. 
And you see, and, and I think we can all sort of understand here and, and begin to put the pieces together, that the Lord used Timothy's grandmother and his mother in a powerful and instrumental way in order to encourage him in the scriptures, in order to bring him to faith in Jesus Christ. You begin to see why I say that what we see here in this statement, in these passages, as we begin, begin to dig a little bit deeper, is we see that this should serve for us as an exhortation to Christian parents. That the Lord uses Christian parents to bring children up in the way of the Lord, to bring them to the faith. That is a, a, an essential role of believing parents. And one that as, as easy as it sometimes is, and as tempting as it sometimes is, must never be outsourced to anyone, not even to the church. What I mean by that is that there is a, a sort of a convenience and an ease of thinking as parents, I'm taking my kids to church. I'm getting them involved in the children's ministry. I'm getting them involved in the student ministry. They're hearing the word of God taught there. They have people who are mentoring them, pouring into them there. Essentially, it's taken care of. I don't have to worry about it too much. I'm doing it by taking them to church, by putting them in these programs. And I am certainly all for programs. And I am most certainly would encourage you, in fact, implore you, not only to be a part of the local church, but to include your children in the life of the local church. These are good things and right things, and, and even these things are part of what God uses in order to strengthen his people and strengthen uh, his families and to bring children up in the way of the Lord. However, what we learn from, from Timothy's grandmother and his mother, from Lois and from Eunice, is that in no way did they leave it up to any teacher, to any rabbi, to any pastor. They did not leave it in their hands alone to make sure that Timothy was taught what he needed to know. But that from a young age, they were teaching him the sacred writings. They were teaching him the scriptures. They were raising him in the way that he ought to be raised. They were giving him every chance possible, as much strength as they had, to hear and understand and believe the gospel. And as parents, this is what we all want, right? For our children. We know that we don't have the power to save our children. There is not a single uh, one of us in here that has the magic formula to speak to your children and for, for, for belief to be magically worked in them. Indeed, only the Lord can do that. But the Lord absolutely, oftentimes, uses parents, grandparents, as his means in order to save their children. In one sense, Timothy had what we might call a boring testimony, doesn't he? That he was raised from a young age to know the scriptures and to believe the scriptures. There was a, a comedian by the name of, of Brad Stein. I think he's probably still performing, but uh, he, he was a, he's a Christian comedian and did a bit one time on uh, sort of how he always hated that he had a boring testimony because he, he believed, he came to faith ever since he was young, like, like five or six years old, he had, he had believed, he had trusted in Christ. And in church, he would hear people tell their, their testimonies, how they were addicted to heroin, and he would think, oh man, 
If only I was addicted to heroin. Then I got to have a testimony like theirs. He would, he would hear these, these various powerful, powerful, moving stories of people who had been brought out of addiction or out of terrible life circumstances or, or deep, deep-rooted sin and, and life-destroying uh, things. And he would think, as, as I've heard people say, this is not just a, a comedic bit, I've heard people sort of say, I have a boring testimony. I mean, I don't remember a moment when I didn't believe. Some people have that testimony. Their faith is sure and their trust in Christ is sure. But if they're trying looking to look back for that moment, the, the, the Damascus moment where the Lord struck them and boom, they believed, their eyes were open. Some people have that, but some people don't. That would be what we might call a boring testimony. But if I were to pull every parent in here, isn't that the exact testimony we want for our children? Don't we want a boring testimony for our children? One that says, ever since I can remember, my mom, my, my dad, my grandmother, they were teaching me the scriptures. The truth was revealed to me, was brought to me, was, was fed to me at an early age. And I believed. By God's grace, I believed. Church family, that's not a boring testimony. That's a beautiful testimony, a glorious testimony of God's faithfulness and how he works. This is, this is an exhortation. It is a, 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 an encouragement to Christian parents of the task of the duty that is yours. But it also is, I think, a particular encouragement to parents who find themselves as solo Christians. It's a difficult thing to be missing a spouse, to partner alongside, with, uh, alongside of you, to take on the task of raising children in the love and admonition of the Lord and in the truth of the gospel. But what do we see from these women in the story? Much as I love to talk about Timothy, I want to talk about his mom and his grandma, who despite the fact that his father is recognized and sort of acknowledged to be an unbeliever, an unbelieving Greek man. And there are many who would think, well... <laughs> I mean, I know how important it is to have a Christian father in the home. I know the role of a Christian parent. What hope is there without one? And indeed, if you're a father in here, you do have an important role to play in the life of your family. But let me say this. If you're a mother in here or a father in here, and you are taking on the task of teaching your children, training your children alone, take heart. Look at Eunice and Lois, who were doing it alone. And what did the Lord produce even in that? Out of their faithfulness, out of their willingness to persevere, even despite the difficulties, even despite the maybe loneliness in the task, they persevered and the Lord brought about not only the salvation, but the growth of Timothy, this great, not only missionary, but pastor of the New Testament. God can do great things through his people, even where it seems there is a void, even where it seems there is a lack. What an encouragement this is to us as we take on this task, whether with another partner or without. It is the task that is ours as parents to take on. Point number two, the next lesson that we see from this somewhat uh, tedious passage is we see that we are called to remove barriers to the gospel, not create them. The discussion of circumcision is one that We've seen for the past few weeks, isn't it? And it's sort of had its ups and downs. 
had its moments. But we recall, we remember the, the declaration, the, the, the statement that the Jerusalem church produced saying, circumcision is not necessary for salvation. If you come to faith in Christ, you are his. Circumcision counts for nothing in relation to the gospel. And yet, what do we see in verses 3 through 5 of chapter 16? Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. They all knew that his father was a Greek. What do we think here about this moment that we have of Paul, who just a moment ago at the Jerusalem council was standing firm saying circumcision is not essential. Circumcision is not required for salvation. It is not required of believers. And now we get here to chapter 16. And Paul says, you know what? There's a lot of Jews that live in this place. Those are the people we're gonna be trying to reach. Timothy, we need to go and have you circumcised. Did Paul just change his mind? Did he just undo everything that the Jerusalem council had, had pinned down and said? I hope you know the answer is, is no. There is not some sort of gospel inconsistency here with Paul. This is not him waxing and waning on his stance of circumcision and its relation to the gospel. What we see here instead is Paul proposing a practical solution to remove barriers to the gospel. We know that Paul was only doing this for practical purposes, not for gospel purposes, not saying that it's required for salvation. This was not some way to somehow make Timothy holy or set him apart. What it was was a means to to break down any barrier that might prevent them from speaking to the Jews and and from going into the synagogues in which they were about to go to. And we know that this is not a, a waffling on the part of Paul because in Galatians chapter two, he takes a very different approach with regards to Titus. In Galatians chapter two, among this church where the, the, uh, the heresy, the circumcision heresy is, is just running amok and it is the direct issue that he's writing in the book of Galatians to address. In that situation for him to take Titus, this one who was from, from purely Greek descent, was not Jewish in any way, and to have him baptized at, at behest of those people who were declaring this, this Judaizer heresy, declaring that it was necessary for salvation, then Paul would have waffled on the gospel. Then he would have given in to the false teaching, saying, well, if, they, I mean, if they're saying he has to be baptized for the sake of, of becoming a, a true believer, then I guess we'll have him baptized. In that case, it would have been waffling. But is that what Paul did? No, he refused, to have Timoth- he refused to have Titus circumcised in that circumstance, but stood firm on the gospel to say, I will not relent. Circumcision is not necessary for salvation. So we see here two totally different circumstances, that in one case, Paul was standing firm for the sake of the gospel, refusing to compromise it by circumcising Timoth- Titus. But here, Paul was standing firmly on the side of I will do, and encourage Timothy to do, whatever it takes to reach unbelievers for the gospel. And in this case, what that meant was having him 
circumcised. You know, there's a lot of sort of contentious issues among the life of, of the church and, and even among society. And, and in like missions conversations, there's oftentimes uh, discussions on what's, what's sort of uh, the, the right means of evangelizing and, and the right missional approach. Because what sometimes happens is that a missional approach will involve not taking the gospel to a, a country, to a nation, to a people group, and the gospel alone, but taking a whole culture and seeking to sort of create a Western civilization or a Western culture in the midst of another culture as a means of, of, of being missional, as a means of, of, of evangelizing. What can happen is that culture can sort of infiltrate that discussion, can infiltrate that practice, and, and things can become distorted. And, and cultural things can sometimes become mixed with the gospel. And that beca- can become a serious problem. And for many people in these cultures, it can oftentimes be a stumbling block. Because what it can be perceived as is that these people are not just coming trying to, to preach the gospel to save us, but they're coming trying to bring all of their their culture along with them. They're trying to, to sort of rip away my identity as a, uh, as a, in, in my culture. And so I think what, what is a good approach, now certainly there's a conversation to be had about what's cultural and what's gospel-centered. But what is good and what's right is when the gospel is gonna be proclaimed in a culture, if there are things that you can do to break down barriers to that culture, then it's a good thing to do it. And I'll give you one example. There are plenty. But one example would be in the context of a Muslim culture, a Muslim context. As Christians, certainly those of us in the Reformed camp, we understand that the issue of alcohol, as contentious as it might be, is not one that is binding for believers with regards to the gospel, with regards to salvation. Whether or not a person drinks alcohol or doesn't drink alcohol makes no difference on their salvation, just like circumcision. Whether or not someone is circumcised or uncircumcised, it makes no difference. Salvation is by faith. Therefore, in Christ, we have the liberty to drink alcohol. But the question then needs to be asked, if a missionary is about to go into a Muslim context where alcohol is not to be partaken of, not only are, are, are they not supposed to drink alcohol, but they're not even supposed to associate with alcohol. For a Christian to come into that context and say, you know what? I'm free in Christ, and to come carrying their alcohol in order to reach these people for the gospel, we would acknowledge and say, that's foolish. That's dumb. And we would probably say, I don't think you are really overly concerned about reaching these people for the gospel, because you're not even willing to do this thing. You're not even willing to give up this, this liberty that is yours in order to remove a barrier. In that case, alcohol, while it is like circumcision, a secondary issue, it can become a barrier to reaching people with the gospel. The same is true here. Paul had Timothy circumcised not to enhance his salvation, not to appease some sort of heresy. Paul had Timothy circumcised so that any possible barrier that they could remove to preaching the gospel and it being received would be removed so that they would have access to the synagogue, so that they would have access to these unbelieving Jews who were lost. 
that they might bring to them the hope of eternal life. The mindset of Paul, and as demonstrated by his submission, the mindset of Timothy was one that was committed more to reaching the lost even at great personal inconvenience and sacrifice. So the question we need to ask is, how strong is our desire to see sinners saved? What should we be willing to give up to see the lost come to know Christ Jesus? Oftentimes, we're not afraid, afraid, we're not willing to give up any comfort at all, let alone be circumcised. While circumcision might not be a barrier to proclaiming the gospel for us today, there certainly probably are barriers maybe that we put in place or refuse to tear down. What are some ways in which we could, if we were willing, open up some avenues to the gospel and yet sometimes we refuse because it's uncomfortable, it's inconvenient, it's difficult. One easy example of this is in the workplace. You know, in the workplace, there are ways in which you can enhance and open up gospel opportunities. And there are certain ways in which you can sort of shut down gospel opportunities, aren't there? I can tell you this much. If someone's going to go and, and ask a spiritual question to, to someone at, at work, are they going to go to the person who has always kind of been a jerk to them? Kind of been a little bit off-putting in their, in their temperament? Who complains about their job? Or is lazy? Or are they more likely to go to and even to hear out in discussion someone who's proven themselves to be a hard worker, to be trustworthy, even to go above and beyond, maybe even take on part of their workload when they need it? Now, there has been an expression and one that I'm sad to say in my high school and college years, I even said and sort of promoted a little bit, an expression that goes something like, as often as you can, Proclaim the gospel, and when necessary, use words. And that sounds nice, right? But the saying is sort of false, isn't it? If we're not using our words to proclaim the gospel, then we're not proclaiming the gospel, right? Because the God, no one is ever going to be saved just by seeing someone be a good person. If that were the case... People would come to faith through all kinds of unbelieving people, right? So, so the saying is a bust. However, I do think it should be rightly understood, and I think that this is the truth, that we can, by our actions, by the way we present ourselves to the world, by how hardworking we are, how willing we are to go above and beyond, by our kindness, by our approach, we can remove barriers to the gospel. If we're proclaiming the gospel to other people and yet refusing to let our lives display the, the effects of the gospel among believers, then aren't we sort of hurting ourselves a little bit? Now, I am not teaching a moralistic gospel here. Good works don't save you. Being a good person, being a hard worker, not being lazy, none of those things save you. Just like circumcision doesn't save Timothy, but it does really help to open up chances, open up opportunities to proclaim the gospel. Let us be of this mind. 
Let us do whatever it takes to break down barriers to the gospel rather than build them up. Point number three, a third final lesson from this moment here in Acts, that we are to trust the providence of God over the plans of men. Verses six through 10 are kind of interesting because it seems like we're just being told here and there where they didn't go. That they were gonna go over here, but nope, the Holy Spirit forbade them from going over there. They were gonna go over here and the Holy Spirit wouldn't let them go over there. It's sort of strange. We might even ask why Luke included this. Luke, why are you telling us where they didn't go? I don't care about that. I wanna know where they went. I wanna know what they did. I don't really care about what they didn't do, we might think. But it's important, right? It's here for a reason. While we don't have all the answers to our questions about these verses, and we don't, right? When he says that the Holy Spirit stopped them, as he says in, in verse, verse 10, that they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit, or when he says in verse 7 that the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them, I mean, it raises questions, it, how? How did the Spirit stop them? Was it through some sort of physical barrier? Was it through some sort of illness? Was it through some sort of prophetic word spoken to them or maybe spoken by them? We don't know. Luke doesn't give us those answers. He doesn't give us those, uh, the, that information. So while we don't have the answers to all the questions that might be raised from these verses, one thing is made abundantly clear. And that is that the Lord was directing this mission. That these men had a plan, didn't they? They had their plan. What were they going to do? They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia because they were forbidden to speak the word in Asia. They were going to go speak the word in Asia, but they were forbidden. They were going to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not allow them. They had plans. They had made a, 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 a sort of game plan. But the Spirit had other plans, didn't he? God had other plans. He was directing this mission. Proverbs says in Proverbs 16, 9, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Making plans is not a bad thing. And some of you in here who are planners... You're welcome. Making plans is not a bad thing. Making plans for the week, for the month, a five-year plan, all of those things are good. That's a good thing. But clinging to our plans with pride and fear if our plans are ruined or broken, that is a bad thing. Clinging to those things as though apart from those, the Lord must not be in this. You know, they might have concluded that after being stopped by the Holy Spirit once, they might have concluded, well, maybe, maybe we should throw in the towel. But they didn't. They kept going. Then they got stopped again. And they maybe could have thought the same thing. Well, should we just go home? Is this not working? But they didn't throw in the towel because they trusted the plans of God more than they trusted their own plans. They clung to those plans. They tr- clung to a sovereign Lord and His will more than their own plans, even though they made plans. For this missionary team in Acts, the thought was, we might have had plans to go elsewhere, 
but the Lord has called us to preach the gospel in Macedonia. And if the Lord has different plans than ours, then so be it. They trusted in the Lord and followed his plan, even when it meant abandoning their own. And think about Timothy himself. We're going to jump back a little bit. When you think about the Lord having plans that might not be the same as our plans, in fact, rarely are. If you look back over your life, how often have your plans come out exactly right? Are you where you thought you'd be 10 years ago, five years ago? Maybe not. But you know what I would argue? If you trust the Lord, then you're good. Relax, take a breath. Wherever you might be, trust in the Lord. Be content where you are. I wonder about Timothy. What were his plans before Paul and Silas came along? Have you considered that? They come along on this missionary journey, and Paul's like, hey, Timothy, I've heard good things about you. Why don't you come on, a, a, on this mission with me? This wasn't a short-term mission trip. This wasn't, hey, come with me for a week, then come back and get back to your life. This was, I'm asking you to basically reorient your life. Change everything, kind of right now. I think Timothy probably had plans, don't you? He might have even had a five-year plan. Maybe he was planning on, on getting a, a certain amount of education. Maybe he had, had his eyes set on, uh, on a pastoral role, being an elder, being a deacon. Who knows? But when the Apostle Paul comes along, the Lord directs he and, and Silas and, and calls Timothy onto the mission field. Timothy says, so long plans, the Lord had other ones. And he trusts the Lord and he follows him. And many times when we're in these moments and our plans are getting messed up, we're kind of getting knocked to and fro, it can be hard to, to know that the Lord is in it. It can be hard to, to see and, and trust that he is moving, that he is working. It reminds me of, of something that I saw in a survival show one time of this strategy that you can use. If you're walking through like a thick woods, it can oftentimes be really hard even to keep your bearings to the point that you walk in a straight line. People will get in thick brush, thick woods sometimes and literally go in circles because they, it's so easy to get confused and get dazed. And there's a, a trick that I learned one time on a, on a survival show that you can take a long piece of rope and, and tie it onto to your backpack or carry it or whatever and let it drag out behind you. And if every now and then, as, as you bob and weave through, through trees and, and, and can't get this way, so you've got to go around this way, that that rope can serve for you as sort of a, a, a trustworthy factor that you can look back on the rope and see how straight is this rope to know whether or not you're headed in the same direction, whether or not you're headed in the right direction. To sort of get some encouragement that, okay, things are fine. It might not feel like it at the moment, but I'm still going the right direction. The rope is straight. I can see that I've, I've thus far faithfully come in the same direction. I'm good to keep going. As Christians, we don't often see exactly where things are going in the moment. But what we can do as Christians, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time at all, then what we can do is we can look back at where we've been. We can look back at the Lord's faithfulness and what he's done for us. And from that, we can take heart and press on going forward, even when it seems like the woods are rough and thick, and even when it seems like we don't know where we're going. 
the Lord does. Even when our plans get screwed up, the Lord's will is sure. His plans never fail. And that brings us great hope and great encouragement. Trust in the providence of God over the plans of men. These verses serve us by giving us great examples of how God uses means to accomplish his will. Especially that he uses his people as his means, as instruments to accomplish what he has ordained. This is at the heart of a proper understanding of missions and evangelism. That the Lord uses people as his means to save as his means to proclaim the gospel, as his means to spread and expand the church. The 1689 London Baptist Confession, chapter 5, lays this out for us. It's the section on God's divine providence. And we read in chapter 2 of, this, of the confession, all things come to pass unchangeably and certainly in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God who is the first cause. Thus, nothing happens to anyone by chance or outside of God's providence. This is what we see here in the story of Acts. That none of this happened by chance. Even if in the moment, it might have felt like it. It probably did at times. But none of it happened by chance. Every single bit of it was ordained by God. But then the confession goes on to say, rightly so. Yet by the same providence, God arranges all things to occur according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily freely, or in response to other causes. In his ordinary providence, this is the important part, in his ordinary providence, God makes use of means, though he is free to work apart from them, beyond them, and contrary to them at his pleasure. That the Lord, in his ordinary providence, though he has the ability to work miraculously any way he wants, the Lord can work outside of, above, beyond, even contrary to means any time that he wants to. And he does certain times, doesn't he? We think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're saved from the fiery furnace, but not through ordinary means. Rather, in sort of contradiction to ordinary means, God miraculously not only spared them from the flames, but they didn't even smell like smoke when they came out. God has the ability to do so, and yet, what we know to be true is that most often, God doesn't work that way. He works through means and he works through means to proclaim the gospel to bring the lost to salvation he worked through means in order to save timothy the means of his mother and his grandmother who taught him the scriptures he he worked through means in order to have paul circumcise timothy and he used them to go into the synagogues and to proclaim the gospel to a great success as Verse 5 says, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. The Lord chose to use these men in this way. And he does the same thing over and over again and he does today. One of the main implications that we ought to draw from this understanding is that we are God's chosen means to take the gospel to the lost. Whether it be the lost in our own home or whether it be the lost in our workplace or whether it be the lost across the world. The Lord has displayed his love and mercy toward us in redeeming us and freeing us from our bondage to sin and death. And he's filled us with the Holy Spirit, equipped us with his word, and he has called us to the task of gospel proclamation. 
He's chosen to use us as his means. We, we talked last Sunday night about the New Hampshire Confession and sort of what it sprang out of, what was sort of the context happening at the time. And one of the issues at the time was a, a form of hyper-Calvinism that had concluded, and many churches had, had adopted this idea that evangelism, missions, it's not something the church should be doing because it is a denial of God's providence. It's a denial of God's sovereignty to save whoever he's gonna save regardless of anything else. Their conclusion was and is, and, and some still hold to these concepts today, that if God has ordained someone to salvation, he's gonna save them and we don't need to do anything. We don't need to proclaim the gospel. We don't need to evangelize. And what are we doing in that? What are people doing in that when they, at the, uh, under the helm of the heading of God's providence, proclaim that we don't need to proclaim the gospel? They are rejecting this idea, this concept that while the Lord is providential and everything happens according to his decree, his will, his plan, in his plan and in his providence, he has chosen to use us, to use people as his means, as his instruments. And to reject that is to live in disobedience to what God has called us to do. We cannot change people's hearts, but we not only can, but should and are called to and must obey the Lord and bringing the gospel to people and proclaiming the gospel to those who don't believe. And the Lord is gonna use that. He's going to use us, you and me, brothers and sisters, Christians, those who know the gospel and believe it and have been saved in order to save others. And so church family, go. Go and proclaim the good news. Be the means that God has chosen to use to tell people what God has done in you to tell them of Jesus Christ, of his death on the cross and his resurrection and the freedom and the, the, the life that is found in him as declared in the scriptures. But go knowing that you're not going alone. You're not going unequipped. He's given you everything you need. And as promised, as he did the disciples in, in Matthew chapter 28, that he will be with you even to the end of the age. Let us take courage in that. Let us be reminded of the goodness of the gospel and let us go forth into our homes, into our workplace, and even into the, the nations and proclaim the good news. Let's pray.